At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. All right, I'm Dominic Chewin from Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Bono and Eisen, and Karen Feinerman. Tonight on Fast, ready, set, price. We are awaiting pricing information on that big DoorDash IPO. It's expected to be one of the biggest of the year. We will bring you the numbers as soon as they cross the wires. Plus, banks, metals, and cars The three best-looking charts to play as we head into 2021. And then later on, amped up, shock jocks Howard Stern is turning up the volume on Sirius XM today. We will tell you about the big money and the big deal that set this stock higher in trading. But we start first tonight with the magic number. That is 11. That is how many days in a row the NASDAQ 100 ETF, known as the Q's, QQQ, That's how many days in a row that the Qs have now posted gains. It is the longest winning streak for this index ETF this year, and it's the sixth straight day of record highs. So if the trade that's been working all year long is still working, where is this big non-tech cyclical rotation that we've all been waiting for? Is there any reason to fight this particular trend? And let's start with Guy Adami. It's the NASDAQ. It's been it all year. There was a blip in September, October, but it's that NASDAQ once again. Is it at all surprising to you? Well, welcome, D2. Always great to have you bring in the energy. (laughs) And if I said to you, Dom, if I said to you, Nigel Tufnell, what would you say? Just curious. Nigel Tufnell, (laughs) what would I say? I don't think I would say anything. You don't know. know, I know Tim knows what to say. Spinal tap. Spinal tap. It's spinal tap. And you mentioned 11. This one goes to 11. 11, You know what? That was magic for spinal tap. (laughs) And it's magical for the The rotation's going on, Dom. Just because the NASDAQ's been going higher doesn't mean you haven't seen rotation into some of these cyclical names. For example, Citi closed around $59 today. The banks have been trading really well. Maybe they're pausing here. But I do think the rotation's in play. I also think that some of these NASDAQ stocks continue to go higher. And by the way, I'm not bullish on the broader market, but Karen's alphabet has traded extraordinarily well today, notwithstanding. And I think you can make a very cogent argument that on valuation, this stock might be cheaper here than it was a few weeks ago when it was 15, 20 percent lower. So although maybe the rotation isn't as um, in the face as you want to make it to be or, or you would want it to be, It's happening beneath the surface. But with that said, some of these high-flying NASDAQ names still work. Karen, I mean, your alphabet, not just the soup, but other stocks that you've been looking at in this big universe of stocks that we all kind of trail towards every day. It's still some of those big tech names. Is it still something that you feel as though carries momentum into the new year? I mean, I'm staying long them. So uh, my alphabet, uh, yes, I still, that's my biggest position. I still have Facebook, which I think was down a few bucks today. Still have Apple, still have Microsoft. Uh, I even have some Amazon. But Guy brought up an excellent point, which is, 
it's not either the Nasdaq or everything else. A lot of other things have been working as well. So the retail trade has really been working. Industrials have really been working. I think uh, Guy's cat has really been working. Um, things like FedEx really working. So it's not an either or. It seems to be that, you know, rising tide and all the boats are up. So I'm long. I'm always long and I'm always looking for stuff to buy. To be honest, I haven't found a lot of new stuff to buy at this level here. All right. I mean, I, it's, it's not a, at all unfathomable to kind of be cautious at these kind of record high levels. Bonwin, I'm, I'm curious what's on your shopping list these days. If everything in that rising tide Karen talks about has lifted all those boats, is it time to just hold? Or are you still out there saying, hey, there's bargains to be found and the momentum is still to the upside. These are the ones that outperform. Yeah, I mean, to the points that were made before, I, there was some preconceived notion that this had to be a mutually exclusive situation, and it simply isn't. What you've seen is you've seen a broadening out of the rally away from the large cap tech. And, and the reason why those are outperforming, that situation, we've kind of transitioned away from that. There was a lot of uncertainty. We wanted cash on hand. We wanted revenue growth. We wanted st safe, stable situations. And what you're seeing now is a bit more um, leverage to high beta cyclical type of names. So for me, you know, I've also been bullish on the banks. I've also been um, constructive on the builders. I've been constructive on a few other names, some of the um, industrials and material space as well. I still think tech is a core holding because it performs in any situation. It's really about the weighting to or away from it. But again, um, I think that the, the cyclical backdrop, the economic backdrop bodes well for cyclicals, but I think there's room, plenty of room for your tech core holdings Amazon, uh, Facebook, Amazon to be one of mine, and Microsoft as well. Tim Seymour, this sounds resoundingly bullish, our panel of experts here in front of me right now in this quad box. Is there anything that we should be cautious about with stocks at record highs, with these levels that we're talking about, with the 49th or 50th record close for the NASDAQ so far this year? Is this something where we say maybe things are a little bit overdone at this stage, or is the momentum really the trend is your friend type trade right now? Well, Dom, first of all, welcome to the big show. It's always a pleasure to have you. And, and I, I, I think the, uh, the things investors should be cautious about are that at some point valuations are, are going to mean something. Uh, in the short run, they, they really don't. At times, we've had these periods where the market has been extremely overheated, especially in tech. And, and you know, look, look at a stock like Amazon, which is actually dead money since July. Um, whereas Apple, at times, I think it's been, you know, if you were the trader, not the investor in Apple, we talk about those to, uh, you know, roles to play, but that ultimately, and Dan Nathan brought this up about 10 days ago, that the Apple chart actually, after consolidating off of the, the euphoria into, you know, kind of 125 to 130 area, has, has rebuilt that, you know, that base and is now a, a very interesting chart and has outperformed. But, but if you look at, at tech, what's been most impressive is that which has led tech the entire time has led over the last four or five days or even during those 11 days. Look at semiconductors, look at the SMH, um, and, and then look at the parts of the semis that I, I think are most well bid, and they include the exposure to 5G. There also, though, exposure just to some more of the, the generic, the PC cycle, and then obviously enterprise. So uh, I, that is encouraging for a, a global spend that I think people are expecting into 2021. But look, 
what's the trade after 11 days up in the Nasdaq? It's it's back into some of those cyclical names, which haven't uh, been devastating. But but actually, what you needed to see was yields consolidated a little bit. We've we've kind of pulled back a little bit on the tenure. The dollar's cut, you know, taking a breath from its dive bomb. Um, I think those those trades that were uh, built around those two moves, higher in rates and lower in the dollar. Are, are the really the trades for the next 11 days? Again, if you're looking for trading and rotation, Karen, well said, Guy, well said, uh, icebreaker, always well said. But but that hey, you don't have to necessarily have one or the other here. That I would make an argument that since May, we've actually seen rotation into interest rate sensitives as Nasdaq's gotten a little too frothy. We've seen this, uh, you know development throughout the markets as the market has been probing whether to actually buy late cycle cyclicals and right now they should be. I mean you mentioned those semiconductors sitting at record highs. I would also mention those cloud computing stocks, the ETFs that track cloud computing also sitting at record highs as well. So it kind of gives you this idea that technology is kind of back in that leadership position right now. But Tim, great points because it's our segue into our next conversation. Our next guest warns the market is overextended. But he believes it may avert a major near-term pullback. Maybe a minor one's in play. Let's bring in Mike Wilson. You know him, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist of Morgan Stanley. Mike, always great to have you. I mean, I, I, I got to say, with an 11-day winning streak in the Nasdaq QQQs, I feel like things are due for a pause. What drives this? What, what drives it? What drives the pullback? Oh, yeah. Good, uh, good evening, and uh, thanks for having me. Look, I, I mean, calling a correction in the bull market is a dangerous game. So you know. Uh, we did that twice this fall, came out, worked out pretty well. Um, we had less conviction on a pullback this time because it's the year-end seasonals, right? The money flows are terrific. The news flow has been great. And, I mean, as, as your panel suggested, I mean, it's a bull market. I mean, everything's kind of working together. So it's not an either-or. Uh, we've been more favorable on the economically sensitive areas, the small cap area, and that has outperformed dramatically since the vaccine announcement, as it should. Um, and the question is, you know, is it just taking a breather here uh, until the next leg up? We think it will. In other words, we think small caps still the better place to be rather than large. We think the cyclical parts of the market still should dominate into next year relative to defensive areas and even the growth stocks, quite frankly, because as rates go up, the uh, uh, expensive you know, growth stocks will, will be gated by valuation. The big loser, if there is such a thing in a bull market like this, has been the defensive sectors your classic late cycle, end of cycle protected areas like utilities and staples and REITs. Those have underperformed significantly uh, for most of this year since the, the rally began in, in March. And that makes perfect sense. So I think the market is doing everything it's supposed to be doing here. It got extended. We, you know, we have said it's overextended here, but it can stay overextended, particularly in December when there's FOMO and there's so much liquidity. You know, it may just continue to kind of melt higher. We'll see. So, so, Mike, I, I'm curious, before we kind of open it up here, how much in your mind, how much optimism or how much future positivity is reflected in the current market as we see it today? I, I, I ask only because we know that the market's a discounting mechanism. We know that the small cap outperformance, these kind of non-technology cyclicals that have been outperforming, are, are on that positivity, that the, the economy recovers next year, that we get a COVID vaccine but how much is priced in already and how much more do we need to keep it going to the upside? Well, look, I mean, the way we've kind of characterized this is, is that the, the real action in the market is not at the index level. It's, it's below the index. Right. So um, one of the things we look at very carefully is the value line index. It's a very broad indicator of, you know, the average stock. 
And this is very typical, Don, when you come out of a recession, right, you want to look towards the average stock, right? The index starts to underperform because that's where the operating leverage is going to be greater uh, and, and, the more, and the greater leverage to a recovery. So if you look at the numbers, the way we have it in our framework, we think there's about 10% upside to the S&P 500 over the next 12 months based on what we think will be forward earnings going up by about 20% and the valuation coming down by about 10%. But around that, there's going to be some huge winners that could be up much more than 10%. And there'll probably be quite a few stocks that are actually down over the next 12 months, right? This is where now you're into the bull market where you'll get separation. I would suggest that the, the winners are going to be these areas where, you know, they benefit from a reopening. They've been shut down or where they're, they have operating leverage to an expanding uh, global economy or even U.S. economy that's better than what people are, are thinking right now. The losers, on the other hand, are going to be areas that are vulnerable to valuation compression from higher rates, which we still think is going to happen, or businesses that are going to see payback of the extra demand they got this year during the lockdown, right? So the work from home beneficiaries, there's going to be a sifting out of kind of the pretenders versus the contenders. A lot of those businesses are going to see payback uh, because people are going to start spending their money in other ways. So that's how we're thinking about it. A lot of opportunity, it's bull market. Uh, it's going to become more idiosyncratic as we go into 2021 for sure. Mike, when I was, Back in the 90s, one of the most talented FX traders I ever met was a guy named Peter Gerhardt, and he sort of was the, at the forefront of these knock-in and knock-out trades. And I mention that because your bear case in the S&P 500, I think, is 33.50. Your bull case, 41.75. I think there's more than a 50% chance that you see both those levels next year. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a good point, uh, Guy. I think I could definitely see that. It, it's very similar to 2018. We sort of made that call that you'd see both our bull and bear, and we actually achieved that. Uh, and, and to your point, whether it's around currency or just volatility of the outcomes, right? So, you know, I could easily see the first quarter uh, being, uh, you know, a, 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 maybe a scarier time as things slow down and maybe we don't get fiscal. Maybe there's a rate shock as the market starts to price in some of the, the good stuff, like, additional fiscal stimulus and maybe getting even more excited about the vaccine. So you, you could have a uh, volatility, uh, both in currencies and rates in particular, that causes the kind of swing you're talking about. So I think that's actually something to consider. But, but you know, the bottom line, what you're saying, Guy, is, is is kind of what we're saying, which is that you need to keep your head on the swivel. You need to take, take advantage of these swings and opportunities. We haven't had that in the last 30 days. I wouldn't get complacent that we're going to have, you know, this nice sort of, you know, stepping up of, you know, 11 days in a row. Um, that's not going to be what probably happens over the next six or 12 months. It's going to be, you know, bigger swings and, and hopefully that'll create some opportunity for us. All right. Mike Wilson, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Thank you very much. Always great to get your thoughts, sir. Have a nice evening. Thanks, Tom. All right. Let's trade this, folks. Bondwin, I'm going to go to you first. It sure seems as though Mike is saying this is going to be a stock picker's market. It's a cliche. We've heard it before. But where exactly then do you find value given the construct he just laid out and what you're setting yourself up for in terms of your book in 2021? Uh, personally, I think you find values in two ways. I think you find value in volatility. We've seen this VIX come back towards this 20 level, which has been high in previous regimes. But keep in mind, we were just up around 40. So I think there's value there in terms of either adding protection or expressing your view via options. Secondly, I think that there is, you know, the, the epicenter names. Now, 
I, I say epicenter because a lot of the industrials and materials, these are already trading at robust valuations. But the, but the sectors that have been on the brink of being impaired, I think that's where the value is. I just have a hard time putting on my scuba gear and diving to the bottom there to kind of put that stuff on when there's so many other areas that are working. So when I, when I risk, risk weight my returns, I find them less attractive. But in terms of up versus downside, I do think that's where the value is. All right, Bonawin, let's hold it for a second there, lady and gentlemen. We've, we're getting some fresh comments from J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. He is right now speaking at the Goldman Sachs Financial Services Conference. Listen to what he just said about treasuries. I think there may be a bubble in a small part of the stock market, not all of it. If you actually analyze it by segment by this, that's not true. And uh, and I, you know, I'm not. I would not be a buyer of treasury. I think treasuries at you know these rates. I wouldn't touch them with a ten foot pole. I wouldn't be a buyer of rates at these rates. And unfortunately, we are. We have no choice. He doesn't want to buy them, but he says there's no choice. Karen, what do you make of that, and how does that influence the overall macro environment for markets? Well, if he's saying we have no choice, I don't know if he means the Fed buying them at this at this rate. Uh, you know. In some ways, maybe he's talking his book. He thinks rates should be higher. Certainly his business would be better. That interest margins would be higher, uh, would be uh, fatter. That would be good. But I, I like J.P. Morgan. I think that, you know, Bonwin talked about epicenter things. This was, you know, I mean, banks were annihilated. And when I look for value, the bank sector is right at the top of the heap. And I love Jamie Dimon. So, you know, I'm doing long J.P. Morgan. I mean, he's certainly one of the more well-known and highly visible CEOs in the banking sector for sure, and arguably corporate America. Tim Seymour, I'm wondering what you think then. If interest rates really are, I mean, first of all, they're, they're coming off some, some multi-kind-of-month high levels that we've seen. They just haven't broken out yet. Is this a market that's still constructive for equities and everything else if rates hold where they are? Well, I think Karen really does love Jamie Dimon, by the way. So um, let's be clear. I, I, I do think you have a case here where the, the interest rate dynamic is something that is very, very important. And, and absolutely, you're buying banks. I, you know, I, it's hard for me to, to you know, embellish upon what Karen has just said, but I think banks offer the most extreme, extreme value when you look at the overall market, again, relative to themselves, relative to the other sectors at, at a time when you see a lot of these other sectors run. And then I would go in the other direction, and, and I would say you stay in these commodity and resource trades, which I often say you don't buy them when they're cheap. And, and the valuations aren't crazy cheap in a lot of these names, but the recovery, and we're talking about four to five to ten year recovery in, in the CapEx and the OpEx cycles and the balance sheets, in addition to the global cyclicality of this global trade, um, that's the other part of this that's very exciting, and, 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 and I'm, I'm very constructive there. All right. Sounds like we've got a lot of things cooking here for the next part of our show. Anyway, thanks very much, guys. Coming up on the show, the king of shock jock radio, giving Sirius XM a bit of a boost today after signing a very, very big new deal. Just how much is Howard Stern pulling in a year? Start writing down your guesses because we'll have all those details coming up. But first... We are awaiting pricing information on that big DoorDash IPO. It is expected to be one of the biggest debuts in public markets this year. We will bring you more details coming up when Fast Money returns after this break. 
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are standing by for the DoorDash IPO details. The company is expected to price its shares at any moment this evening ahead of tomorrow's very big market debut. Let's get out to our own Leslie Picker with more details on DoorDash. Just how big could this IPO get, Leslie? It could be one of the biggest IPOs this year. Currently, Snowflake is the largest at $3.8 billion. This one's looking at upwards of $3.1 billion. I'm told that the pricing call started oh, about 15 minutes ago. That's the meeting between DoorDash and its advisors where they really hunker down and decide the final price for the IPO. With this one and Airbnbs tomorrow, there's a little less art and a little more science involved in these pricing discussions. Now, the delivery platform is employing a unique twist to the pricing part of the IPO process and that they used an auction-like platform for investor orders. That algorithm is supposed to give them a more data-driven sense of demand as opposed to the traditional way, which, as you know, Dom, is much more hands-on between the banker sales teams and investors. And based on the hybrid auction, I'm told that DoorDash is planning to price at the high end or above the boosted range, which would yield an offering size of upwards of $3 billion in a fully diluted valuation around $36 billion. That puts DoorDash's valuation around 11 times forward 2020 sales, several turns higher than other platform companies. But investors may be willing to pay a premium since DoorDash managed to quadruple its top line and has at least shown a path to profitability with the second quarter showing positive net income, although turning back into losses during the third quarter, Dom. All right. So, Leslie, I'm sure you'll be watching for those headlines coming out. We'll come back to you with those details. Thank you very much. All right. Our panel, let's trade it. You can't trade DoorDash yet, but you can certainly feel what's happening with the IPO market right now. I would note that one of the ETFs that people trade the IPO markets with, which is the Renaissance IPO ETF, is up 115% on a year-to-date basis. That kind of tells you something about these recently IPO'd companies. Guy Adami, is this at all a sign to you that the markets are still healthy, the fact that there is still robust demand for initial public offerings? Yeah, I think some people would say that's a great sign. I think the half-empty folks would say it's a sign of frothiness and everybody going to market at the same time it is, is, is a sign that maybe things are sort of topping out. I, I don't know the answer to that, but what I do think I know the answer to is how you play it. And last night we mentioned NASDAQ in terms of, the, of a final trade, and I'll mention why, because if you look at their November volumes, equity volumes are up 55% year over year. And that's a stock that on valuation basis is probably still pretty reasonable. So if you're looking to play it sort of second derivative to me, Dom, it's with the NASDAQ NDAQ. So if you're looking at some of these exchange operators as ways to kind of capitalize on this and the capital markets activity that's kind of coming up here, Tim Seymour, 
Does it mean then that by buying some of these types of stocks, exchange operators and whatnot, it means or implies that 2021 is still supposed to be constructive? What's going to change here? Um, and so, yes, I do think that $146 billion this year. And you also hit on the banks. I mean, look, J.P. Morgan uh, you know, and Goldman are, are the, the, the two equity underwriters everybody wants on their tombstone. Um, nothing is going to change here until the Fed changes. Money is free, and this is pushing liquidity out there. So um, DoorDash, which was a $14 billion company uh, earlier in the year and you know, a billion-and-a-half-dollar company uh, a couple of years ago, gives you a sense of where markets are. By the way, every time I say DoorDash, I feel like I'm saying Jordash, which were the jeans, jeans that Guy Adami wore in the 80s, and I, and I missed that. So. With the horse logo. I, re- I remember those. I might have whiffed on Spinal Tap. But I do remember Jordash jeans. <laughs> Bonowin may not remember yeah. Jordash yeah. jeans, but I remember Jordash jeans. So Bonowin, I'm going to go to you last before we go to <laughs> before we go to break here. Is the IPO market something that you still feel as though is a good indicator for the overall market right now? Yeah, well, you almost lost me there with the Jordash thing. I thought I was in in this conversation, and then I you know I had to one foot in, one foot out. <laughs> listen, I listen. If you if you if you look at how these IPOs have traded. There's tremendous demand for growth here. I mean, it's hard to step in front of a train and, and sell that. So to answer your question and to loop in something that Guy mentioned, Morgan Stanley, right? If you look at Eaton Vance, the traditional banking, as Karen has pointed to, and then also like the, the, the e-trade, and, e-trade and retail side, that is another way to kind of play this, where you're actually somewhat of a toll booth. You have diversified revenue streams um, and more visible revenue streams. So that, that's another name that I would mention. Yeah, I would also mention that we saw some headlines earlier today that they're getting some plans further down the line incrementally for Robinhood's potential IPO sometime down the line at a fairly decent valuation as well. All right, guys, thanks very much. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. New year, new stock picks. A top technician joins us next to go off the charts and bring us his three best ideas for 2021. You can't afford to miss this. Plus, our RH shares in style. We'll dive into the options pits for a look at what to expect ahead of its earnings report. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's pop quiz time. What do cars, metals, banks what do they have all, all have in common? Our next guest says that they are some of the best-looking charts in the market right now. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone. You know him. He's over at Strategus. Chris, take it away. 
Hey, Dom, thanks for having me. Um, I want to talk about three names. You know, there's 18 trading days left in the year. We're about to look ahead. What are going to be the stocks that drive returns next year? Financials is where we want to begin. Morgan Stanley uh, really has only just broken out from this three-year range. It spent the last three years between 30 and 60. The last four weeks, the momentum behind this has been tremendous. When you get these momentum surges, it usually fares well for future returns. This is a very bullish development. I think any pullbacks over the next number of weeks, look to 57, 58, 59 as support going forward. The stock can be bought down there. But what really gets us interested about Morgan Stanley is the long-term picture. No one's made any money here for 20 years. This thing peaked in summer of 2000, 20-year dead money, bear market that is over. This is a leader next year. Uh, we go to the next name here. I think Tim might like this one in the material space. This is Rio Tinto, ticker RIO. Another name that really has spent the last two or three years in a range. Stock trade 72.73 today. Uh, the big breakout was above 65. I think any pullbacks over the next number of weeks, you buy it. But same story here. Let's take a step back. Let's look at the 20-year chart of Rio Tinto. It peaked in 08, and no one's made any money for 12 years. This has been a decade-long bear market. That bear market now is over. This is a stock reaccelerating. It has the tailwind of weak dollar, copper up, a name we like next year. And then lastly, we'll go with a newer issue. Uh, it's only 18 months since Uber came. Uh, May of uh, 2019, we think the stock is very, very timely here. It just broke out of this big base. It's reclaimed that 47, 48 level where it first traded to uh, in May uh, of uh, 2019. We think this is a leader next year. So banks, some cars, materials, that's how we want to play this setup. All right. Thanks very much to Chris Byrne over Strategus. Always great to, get you have, to have you here and get those charts in play here. Let's trade this, folks. Karen, what's your favorite chart out of the ones that Chris just laid out? Is it the banks? Is it the cars? Or is it the materials? I'm just looking at your pup in the back. He or she looks like he's having a good time. Oh. Uh, I hope he's not doing something embarrassing. The, um, I didn't see his charts, <laughs> but I did listen to what he said. I like, because uh, we don't have the return here, but... I like the Morgan Stanley story, actually. You know, I, the evolution of the business has been tremendous, and yet the valuation hasn't changed that much. I like the recent deals. I, I like Morgan Stanley right here. I think it falls very much into the value bucket, and I'm a believer that we will see that value creation next year. All right, we got a buyer of the bank trade. Guy Adami, what are you thinking here? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, Tim's been on this resource trade in Rio Tinto. I'll let him speak about. Um, but Morgan Stanley, I agree. And kudos to Dan Nathan, who actually, I think a month and a half, two months ago, said it was one of the best looking charts that he saw. And I know collectively, when they announced that Eaton Vance move, we said above 57, this is off to the races. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what's happened. So I hear what Chris Verone is saying in terms of the last 20 years. But over the last 20 or so weeks, this has been a monster, and I think Morgan Stanley can continue to trade higher from here. All right, and Tim Seymour, what do we think? 
Well, you have a case where uh, iron ore prices are at nine-year highs, and, and China is reaccelerating. And, and the story, Chris is right. I mean, Bromat's back. I, this is a 20-year story for me going back in time as an investor that, that I was a heavy investor in resources and commodities as an EM guy. And this is, this is something that's very exciting to see again. And it was a very, very bad broken trade for a long time. So uh, BHP breaking out finally, uh, but more importantly, underlying iron ore prices, which means steel prices are going higher. Look at U.S. Steel up 12, 11 or 12 percent today uh, and up 70 percent in the last three weeks. Um, those trades uh, are the ones that still excite me. Base metals as well, like copper out there. Thanks very much, guys. We'll be back with more yep. here. We just went through some of Christopher Owen's top picks for 20 to 21. Credit Suisse is coming out with its very own list. You can read all about it on our website. Just head over to CNBC.com pro to sign up for those particular trades. And coming up on the show, Sirius XM shares are getting a boost as Howard Stern signs a very big mega contract with the satellite radio provider. The details on that deal, you know, not, not on that deal, he said, and how to trade the streaming stocks coming up. Plus, guys, dogs are howling about Chewy's latest earnings reports. We just saw Karen's dog, by the way. We'll bring you all of the after hours action from that name, Chewy.com, when Fast Money returns after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla pulling back from all-time highs as the company announces plans to sell $5 billion worth of its own stock. But Tesla's stock isn't the only thing on the move. Let's get out to Phil LeBeau with the details on Tesla and another kind of move. Phil. Don, we're talking about Elon Musk moving from California to Texas. Now, CNBC.com first reported last week that, according to people who were close to Elon Musk, he was planning on moving there. Well, today, when he was talking on the WSJ CEO Council, he was asked point blank about it, and he said, yes, I have moved to Texas. And that was one of the more interesting comments he had. The question becomes, why? Why leave California? And the question is whether or not California... It's certainly not a friendly state when it comes to business. Elon says it's a great state, but it does have its problems. Here's what he had to say. If a team has been winning for too long, they, they do tend to get a little complacent, a little entitled, and then they don't win the championship anymore. So California has been winning for a long time. Um, and I think they're taking it for granted a little bit. He also said that the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley, has an outsized influence on the country and certainly on the business climate, uh, not only in California, but around the country and around the world. Keep in mind, Elon Musk has plenty of business in Texas. They've got the uh, Starship business down in the southern part of the state, as well as the new Gigafactory, Giga Texas, as they refer to it, just outside of Austin. That's where they plan to, by the end of next year, roll out the first cyber truck, and that's going to be a huge plant. So they've got plenty of business there, and Elon Musk making it clear he will be spending his time and his residence is now in Texas. All right, Phil LeBeau, thank you very much there for the latest update on not just Elon Musk, but Tesla as well. We appreciate it. All right, let's trade it. Bonawin, I go to you. The numbers are staggering. At the end of last year, Tesla was worth roughly $75 billion in market value. It closed today on CNBC.com. I'm looking right now at around $606 billion in market cap leading to year-to-date gains of 677% and one-year returns of 867%. Do you want to buy Tesla? Truly staggering indeed. Uh, Gun to my head, if I'm forced to buy it or sell it, I would buy it because I think it is a poor practice to step in front of trends 
and this is an absolute freight train. So yes, gun to my head, I'm buying it. I'm certainly not shorting it. All right, certainly not shorting it. Karen Feinerman, I'm going to turn to you because it was right here on this show maybe about a week ago when you said that you wouldn't be surprised if Tesla would sell some stock going into its inclusion in the S&P 500. $5 billion, it would be a lot in any other normal circumstance, but at $606 billion of total market cap, it works out to be less than 1% of its market value right now. Is this Tesla stock one that you would want to own ahead of its inclusion in the S&P 500? Well, just the idea now that $5 billion is kind of, it's not a drop in the bucket, but something close. And yet for them to be able to raise $5 billion like that is pretty extraordinary. All that having been said, not, you know, I didn't like it hundreds of points ago, or I guess, uh, well, pre-split, post-split, doesn't matter, hundreds, thousand points ago. So I can't get on board here, but uh, they're doing the right thing. It's a great time for them to raise money to fulfill that giant bid that's been building uh, for the S&P inclusion. Good for them. All right. Big deal for sure there. Five billion dollars. Almost a drop in the bucket, but not maybe a real drop in the bucket. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Coming up on the show, shares of Chewy on the move after the company's latest earnings report. We will dive into the numbers that have investors chasing their tails this afternoon. See what we did there. And we're counting down to earnings from one of our traders' favorite stocks. What you should expect from Restoration Hardware's report that comes out tomorrow, coming up after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Chewy. That stock whipsawing after it reported a smaller loss than expected in the quarter. It also gave some strong guidance for the current quarter. But sales per customer came in less than expected. Shares did hit an all-time high, by the way, during the regular trading day. They're off just marginally right now in the after-hour session. Let's now turn our attention out. By the way, hold on. I want to ask something of Guy Adami right now. Because Chewy.com is one of those stocks, I'm not saying that I closely associate with you. I'm, I'm thinking more Karen right now because I keep seeing her dog and I love her dog and everything. But I know that you've got some pets. I know that you're into this pet trade. Can we just talk a little bit about Chewy and whether or not you're still a buyer of this kind of stock? Yeah, we've actually talked about this for a while, but I think this quarter was I'm shocked, actually, that the stock didn't give back today's gains, because I think if memory serves, the stock was up over four dollars and you mentioned it made an all time high. I mean, it's just over its skis a bit. But I will tell you that I'm still the dinosaur that actually drives to the local pet store and picks up uh, the dog food, those 40 pound bags over my shoulder and brings it home. So. The next thing I buy online will be the first thing. I'm not their target audience, but I do think you have to pull the ripcord and take profits and chewy here, Dom. I mean, this is also a scenario, and maybe, Karen, I'll get one quick comment from you before we move on to our next trade here. Is this pet trade for real? The estimates from the Pet Products Association says we'll spend, as Americans, $99 billion on pets this year. We're going to spend $90 apiece during the holiday season on our pets this year. Is the pet trade still intact? The pet trade, the underlying, I think, is still intact. So many people got pets during, the, during this pandemic, but the valuation, it's a little out of tact for me. So uh, I'm not a buyer right here. All right. She but says woof. Remarkable year for this. Woof to that trade there. All right. Thanks very much. And let's turn our attention now to one of tomorrow's marquee earnings reports. This is Restoration Hardware looking to close out a monster year on a very bright note when it reports after the closing bell. And my co spotted some unusual activity in the options market today that could signal 
this stock is headed a lot higher. Mike, what exactly did you see? Hey, Dom. So, yeah, you're talking about a monster earnings. That's essentially what the options market is expecting is a monster move. Right now, the options market is implying that the stock could move $60 higher or lower by the end of the week, about 12.8% of the current stock price, slightly less, actually, than the 15% or so that it's averaged the week they reported earnings over the last eight reported quarters. The most active options were the weekly 510 strike calls. Those were trading for about $12.75. Buyers of those calls we're risking a little less than 3% of the current stock price, betting that it could rally. And you will note that a couple analysts have raised their price targets on it recently. I think Telsey, Bank of America, both raised it to around 500 And then J.P. Morgan also raised their price target earlier this month. So there is some bullish activity, and the options market is betting that the rally could continue. All right, Mike Coe, thank you very much for that look at the options market right now. It could be a big deal. Bonowin, I'm going to turn to you here. This has been one of those big home improvement type trades that's been a beneficiary during the COVID pandemic. It's not the same, though, as Home Depot or others. This is on the higher end of things. What exactly does that tell you about the type of trade that's developing with regard to home improvement during the COVID pandemic? Uh, I mean, I think I, underlying it, I think it really speaks to the K-shaped recovery that I think everyone on this panel has spoken to. The, the trade specifically playing this vis-a-vis calls as opposed to actually outlaying the cash needed to actually own the shares, I think is a way to kind of do it. Listen, I think the implied volatility is a touch high here, but I would much rather risk a couple of percent for the upside rather than uh, you know playing that essentially binary event around earnings. All right, Restoration Hardware, a juggernaut for sure so far this year. Thanks very much, guys. For more options action, by the way, be sure to tune into the full show Fridays, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, right here on CNBC. Meanwhile, we've got a news alert on stimulus talks in Washington, D.C. Let's get straight out to Elon Moy with the latest. Good afternoon, Elon. Well, Dom, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin now says that he has presented House Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a new $916 billion proposal for coronavirus relief. Now, this package would include two of the most contentious items, money for state and local governments, as well as liability protections, which the top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, had just a few hours ago suggested that they cut out altogether. Now, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, in a statement, did say that they would fund this with $140 billion in unused funds from the Paycheck Protection Program, as well as $429 billion in funds from the Treasury from ending those emergency Fed lending programs. And he said that he looks forward to achieving bipartisan agreement so they can provide critical economic relief to American workers, families, and businesses. Now, separately, I've also heard from the White House that another round of direct checks remains a high priority for the president. So, Dom, clearly a lot of moving parts in these stimulus negotiations as the White House, through Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, has now presented Democrats with a new $916 billion proposal. Back to you. All right, trying to get something done for the holiday season here out of Washington, D.C. on the stimulus front and aid front. Elon Moy, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Well, now let's talk a little bit about this. And, I'll, and Tim, I'll go to you here with this. We've heard so many of these incremental headlines. Yes, they're going to get something done. No, it's not going to happen. Yes, they're going to do it. No, they're not going to do it. What exactly as a trader do you do with this kind of information, headlines that incrementally move the story forward? 
I think the, the bid ask on this is the market definitely believes uh, 900 plus billion is getting done. The question is how much on the upside. So I think it'd be a disappointment if we think this falls apart. Uh, and, and I do think that the, this is in the market right now. I think there's a surprise to the upside. All right. Surprise to the upside there if we can get a deal done. Thanks very much, guys. Coming up on the show, the big money battle brewing between Howard Stern and Joe Rogan. You're going to want to tune into this one. The details are coming up after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Investors are turning up the volume on shares of Sirius XM after the satellite radio operator inked a new multi-year deal with Howard Stern. Let's get out to our own Julia Borston with all the details. Julia. Well, Dom, Howard Stern signing a new five-year deal with SiriusXM. They're reportedly paying him as much as $120 million a year. Now, SiriusXM will license Stern's archive of audio and video for an additional seven years as well. Now, Stern was able to secure that payday because he's a huge draw for SiriusXM's 34.5 million subscribers. Stern said last year that 60% of those subscribers listened to him, and Credit Suisse estimates that 15% of Stern's listeners could cancel their SiriusXM subscriptions if he let, left the company, which would mean a potential subscriber loss of 2.7 million subscribers. Now, SiriusXM doesn't just need Stern to compete with radio, but also with Spotify, which has been investing in drawing big exclusive names such as Joe Rogan. Now, SiriusXM shares gained a bit today, about 1.5% on this news, but they're still down about 7.5% year-to-date, though analysts are largely bullish. Bullish. Over 70% have a buyer overweight rating, and only about 11% have an underweight or sell rating on the stock. Dom? All right, Julia Borson, thank you very much. And as a plug, CNBC is on SiriusXM channel 112 for those listeners out there. Thanks very much, Julia Borson. We've got some breaking news now on the DoorDash IPO. Leslie Picker has those details. Leslie. Hey, Dom, I am told by three sources that DoorDash plans to price its IPO at $102 per share. That is well above the hiked price range, which had the upper end of that at $95 a share. And at the 102 price, uh, DoorDash would be offering about $3.4 billion worth of stock and a fully diluted valuation of $39 billion. Again, this is well above expectations at the beginning of this process, well above the range that they had already hiked by about 12 percent to offer the second biggest IPO of 2020. Dom. All right. Thanks very much, Leslie, for staying on top of that story for us. Tim Seymour, $39 billion, DoorDash, valuation, yes or no? No. Um, and, and I think this is probably good for other related kind of delivery plays. I think it's great for Uber. But um, I, I'm surprised to see that they're actually going, going as greedy as they are, if I may say that. Because I think a lot of these other deals, part of what's been done is uh, really the, the, the magic has been leaving something on the table um, based upon this range. I, I recognize the demand is there, but um, I'm surprised to hear that they're pricing it beyond the high end of the range. I mean, Karen, as we talk about some of the, the sentiment that goes into a valuation like that, is it at all worrying? Does it, does it say to you that maybe Airbnb comes out at the same kind of valuation or every other IPO that comes out possibly in 2021? Yes, I think so. Although they will have a look. Airbnb will have a look tomorrow to see how this trades. I agree with Tim that valuation is really high. I get like 15 and change times a guess of revenues. I don't know. That seems kind of high. They don't earn money regularly yet. They did once, but they could. I mean, 
they've done a great job building their business and have huge market share, which is important. But that valuation, I don't know. I wonder where the extra two dollars came from. Like, how did they get to a hundred and two? You know, I wonder sort of how that it's how that the works. Algorithms. I don't know. It's the algorithms, right? Okay. <laughs> they, that right. that hybrid, whatever, whatever it's that hybrid the model they're using is right now. Guy Adami, let's get your take here. Is this something that is at all worrying, or is there still upside? Can can an IPO investor make money after buying the IPO if it's already priced as aggressively as it is right now? Yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm not even going to try to answer that question because I have no. I don't want people to get hurt on these things. I mean, we've seen it work to their advantage, and we've obviously seen it go the other way as well. So I don't want to lead people down this primrose path. But to Tim's point, you know, you're probably at the upper end of absurdity right now, but that's not to suggest these things can't go higher. If you're looking for a derivative play, you look at Uber, but then I go one step down, and I say that Lyft is probably cheap here. So Uber's been a monster. Lyft has been catching up. I would look to Lyft if you're looking for a second, third derivative trade. And we've seen an, an upgrade of Lyft because of that catch-up trade with Uber as well. Bonowin, what do you think here? DoorDash, worth it? Uh, I personally don't think so, and I wish I had a contrarian view. But, I mean, you're looking at essentially an isolated situation with COVID and extrapolating that and pricing it, boom, smack dab in the middle of that. No, I, I can't do it. All right, a little skepticism there for DoorDash's extended valuation right now. Thanks very much, guys. Don't miss, by the way, Carl Quintanilla and John Ford's special, The Path Forward, Race and Opportunity in America. They will take a closer look at the economics of the Latino community, including representation in corporate America, education, and entrepreneurship as well. That's this Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on CNBC. Well, it's time for the final trade. We've got 45 seconds. Let's go around the horn. Tim, to you first. Yeah, and I'll be watching that. And in terms of valuation, Citibank, to me, is, is where there's value. We talked about the, the kind of the inherent leverage in banks here and the interest rate trade. Citibank is the trade. Karen. Related. First of all, thanks for being on, Tom. Those are big, small shoes to fill for Melissa. But anyway, um, I like Morgan Stanley. Chris is going to make <laughs> me take another look at it more closely. All right, Bonowin. Space has been beaten down a little bit recently. I look for an opportunity to buy on weakness. Around $51, ITB. All right, Guy Adami. Nike and earnings next week. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.